It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Just sick of your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Case of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day and thanks for joining us on Democracy Sausage, which comes each week from the ANU, the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. Now, Nick Bryant, who you may know, was the BBC Australia correspondent as well as the US correspondent for many years and, of course, wrote that excellent book, When America Stopped Being Great, which we did discuss with him on Democracy Sausage some time ago. Well, he watches his homeland, Britain, quite closely and he writes about it very, very evocatively. He's called the spectacle of decline in UK politics depressing and says it's miserable to watch the chaos from afar talks about you know waking up each morning and there being a new development a new spectacular development and he says all this shows that what you know britain was promised britannia unchained uh, you know by brexit actually delivered something more like britannia unhinged in his words and he makes the point that post truth politics and post post truth policy were just simply never going to work And it's certainly true that Britain feels less wealthy, less secure, less powerful after Brexit. It certainly looks that way to us from from afar, and we certainly hear a number of people saying so. It is, for example, the only G7 economy to be smaller now than before the pandemic. And Bryant says that divorce from Brussels has made GDP 5% lower and investment 13% lower, which does seem to be rather contrary to what was promised. So to get inside what's been going on in British politics and where it will go from here are two very reliable sources, Australian Brits and democracy sausage favourites, Elizabeth Ames and Sophia Gaston. Elizabeth Ames, as you know, is Chief Operating Officer at Atalanta. She's Chair of King's Australia Institute and a Board Director of the Britain Australia Society. Welcome back, Elizabeth. Thank you, Mark. It's delightful to be back. I think only two prime ministers and one monarch since we last recorded. <laughs> that's true. There has been quite a lot going on. That's, that's very true. 
And Sophia Gaston is these days, she's sort of changed jobs recently, is Head of Foreign Policy and UK Resilience, which sounds fairly topical, at Policy Exchange, one of Britain's leading think tanks. Welcome, Sophia. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Always a great pleasure to have both of you on. Uh, always, it's a double treat having both of you because of the, uh, the great wisdom and insights that you bring to Democracy Sausage. So let's start at the basics. Has the ship been steadied after all of these ructions and, uh, and the turmoil that we've seen in British politics and I guess the replacement of the two Lizers with two men? Elizabeth? Well, certainly I think Rishi Sunak coming into number 10 has calmed the markets. He's obviously a former banker and knows the City of London well and, and in some respects, you know, it was essentially Britain being ruled by the markets, particularly the gilt markets under Liz Truss. I think King Charles III has obviously had a long-term succession plan uh, that that the men in grey in the palace have been working on for a very long time. So it's been reasonably steady as she goes. I do think in terms of the, the reputation of the king, he's bizarrely worried about the next season of The Crown coming out. There's a lot of <laughs> briefing against Netflix and The Crown in the UK papers. You saw Dame Judi Dench come out with a statement the other day saying how outrageous it was that Netflix wouldn't say it was a drama, only for Netflix to leak the fact that she'd applied to be the Queen Mother and they had turned her down. Um in terms of politics, there's a really funny quote in this morning's Politico from a Labour staffer saying, Rishi Sunak promised a government of professionals and it's a professional shit show. Uh, I'm not sure if we're allowed to swear. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. No, no, but, we are. We definitely are. I mean, you're quoting someone after all. But the the general impression is that he's brought back old hands. People have returned to ministries they used to run. So, for example, Michael Gove, who's widely regarded as a very effective minister, has returned to the Department of Leveling Up and Homes and Housing. But there is still this undercurrent of crisis. Certainly some of the appointments, Suella Braverman in particular at the Home Office, haven't gone down well and, and that is still leading UK papers, you know, investigations into her and what she's doing. And then we had this extraordinary front page splash on the mail on Sunday yesterday saying that Liz Truss's telephone had been hacked, presumably by Russian operatives. And this became known to the government during the summer leadership campaign. And Boris Johnson and the cabinet secretary, who's the sort of head of the civil service, hushed it up so as not to have an impact on the leadership campaign. So I would say on the surface, things look reasonably stable or more stable, but the undercurrents of uh, crisis and instability are still very much with us. That point you make about succession planning is quite interesting, isn't it? Because there's such a radical contrast that hadn't struck me until now, but such a radical contrast between the royal family, which has had this succession plan running for however old Charles is, um, and uh, and and the the British Conservative Party, which has uh, certainly not really had any succession plan from from kind of crisis to crisis, as we've seen each of these these things roll out really since David Cameron. Um, you know, so it's just chaos, really, Sophia? Well, I think I would take a slightly different view in that I don't in any way <laughs> dispute the atmosphere of, of crisis, and it has been extremely dysfunctional. But I think another way of looking at this is just to say how extraordinarily resilient British institutions are. And, you know, I think... It was very interesting. Um, I work, you know, closely in a number of ways with government, and you know, the the wheels have kept turning 
throughout all of this. And I suppose, especially in, in my patch around foreign policy, national security, you know, the show has gone on and the UK has remained a very consistent actor and, and not just consistent. I mean, if you look at what we're doing in Ukraine, we are leading. So I think, you know, certainly in terms of domestic politics and uh, the economy and and all of that, it has felt very febrile. Um, there's obviously been a number of personalities coming through, um, but the British state itself is still functioning quite well. Um, I would say as well, I mean, I'm also not a declinist about Britain's future. I do think one of the challenges, you know, undoubtedly Brexit has been an extraordinary disruption that is partly just the consequence of injecting a referendum mandate into a parliamentary democracy and trying to translate that. And then some catastrophic decisions that have been made by individual leaders and um, about, you know, the structure of their cabinet and uh, different how they play to different power dynamics. Um, but, you know, I think one of the challenges for those who would identify Brexit as being the central issue here is that the sort of key proponents of Brexit, the ones that have really stuck around and been most consistent, people like Michael Gove and so on, even Boris Johnson to some extent, always um, have been clear that they see this as a medium-term proposition. Johnson, of course, had his Nike tick uh, analogy, and the sunlit uplands he was promising were not necessarily in the short term. Um, I think everybody expected there would be quite a lot of disruption um, in the short term. So, the, and what's interesting about that is it not only gives a bit of cover, uh, which has allowed the Brexit cause to remain more resilient, even in the you know wake of of increasing skepticism. I think to some degree, it it also means that there is a kind of relationship between how the government has approached this politically and where the British people are at. Because one of the most extraordinary characteristics of the British people is a sort of, you know, they're always very much taking a long view. It, it is a national characteristic. They will say, you know, when I do focus groups and so on, oh, well, yes, well, we had a bad decade, but there was a good one that came after that. And, <laughs> and they, they are ultimately optimistic in, in terms of how things will play out in, in the longer term. So I think the alignment between those two, you know, where the British people are at instinctively, that sort of hardwired DNA and, you know, a quite um, helpful uh, environment uh, to mask short-term disruption I think is one of the reasons why it must be so difficult to decipher and understand and penetrate this entire sort of post-Brexit model um, from the outside. Well, I want it's a really interesting point you make there, Sophia, about the the mentality because some people have uh, been talking about the the British mentality. Um, I suppose the sort of the the political profile, psychologically speaking, of of uh, the British electorate. And, and sort of suggesting that it's 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 too strongly rooted in the kind of triumphs of the Second World War and not enough on some of the failures or the decline of Britain in terms of its global influence that has occurred since. And so we saw that reference to um, you know the Suez crisis uh, as 
as an analogy with Liz Truss's policies and perhaps even with Brexit, that is the idea of Britain acting as if it is a superpower or a global power when it just simply no longer is and and gets kind of uh, a reality check from the US or in the case of uh, Trussonomics from the markets. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, I've done a lot of research into nostalgia and its role in our contemporary politics. And I mean, I would say firstly, Britain is absolutely not a superpower, uh, but it does remain a great power. And anybody who has seen what we've been doing in Ukraine, um, you know, I think will be reminded of the extraordinary efficacy of British foreign policy when all the gears are working well. Um, And I would say that in terms of the influence of nostalgia, it is potent in British politics. It is potent in in pretty much every advanced democracy, I have to say. And there's a number of factors about that. We are at very much an inflection point in advanced democracies where there there are sort of tensions about the balance you strike between the sort of anchors of the past and the promise of the future. And I think actually Brexit very much came in at the middle of that. And the conclusion that I got looking into nostalgia around the Brexit uh, vote and and in the years immediately afterwards is, you know, if you want to cast Brexit as an entirely nostalgic decision, you will come up short. There, there was a very strong element about it that was looking to the future. Now, you can dispute whether or not that was a realistic proposition and, and have that debate. But I think what is interesting is when you look at sort of the sum of all the media coverage uh, and, and political sort of the use of, of nostalgia as a, as a form of political rhetoric, um, it's, it's just as much those on the anti-Brexit side who are employing this and describing Brexit as a nostalgic phenomenon as it is those on the pro-Brexit side actually using it in good faith. So I I think that it is a mix and it's really important to understand that because just dismissing it as something nostalgic misses something very important about how the British people identified with this. And I think part of the reason that we have had this dysfunction is because Brexit forces us to ask the question of who we are. And that is in part a question about our past, but also a question about the future. I would add to that uh, what I think is really interesting is we're very much heading into a new multipolar world. You're seeing you know, China prioritise being COVID-free over economic growth and thinking very much about its security. You're seeing Europe think about its security and its alliances and particularly its common defence and security policy in a new way that it hasn't been forced to before by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so for Britain, as for other, you know, great powers, however you want to describe them, it's not sufficient to act on your own, whether you're in the EU or not. And I would you know, say France is a great example of this as well. And so it's really imperative for British policymakers to think about the UK in terms of that multipolar world and make sure that they're continuing to build really stable and durable links. And that's where I think, you know, Liz Truss attending this recent European conference, which was not an EU conference, but rather a EU-wide conference, 
on defence and security and thinking about how Europe engages in the world was a positive sign that the British establishment is ready to re-engage with its closest neighbour and think about how it acts within that European context, but also using that as a base to go out to the world. And that's where links, you know, long-standing links to countries like Australia and Canada and New Zealand and others really will become more important to the UK, not in a sort of nostalgic sense or a sort of little England sense, but much more in terms of if the UK is not able to act on its own in the world, who are its sort of natural allies that help to protect things like democracy and the rule of law, whether or not there's been crisis here, as Soph says, the British institutions have been very resilient and still provide a model where you can have this sort of chaos at the top and still have a mostly functioning state. And so that's where I think there is a a need for a recalculation potentially within some aspects of the the British establishment to really prioritise those links and think about the UK in this new way. Yeah, look, I think all of those points are, are really interesting perspectives to bring in, but but we can't uh, get around the fact that the campaign for Brexit tapped into nostalgia. I mean, take back control was about a, you know a, a, a view of the past that that was idealised and better than than the you know than the uh, extant situation, um, and so the, it, 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 the the campaign sought to. Uh, effectively weaponize that uh, to or capitalize on that sentiment and a lot of people who were i guess you would say traditionally or habitually part of labor's base swung to brexit on the basis of that nostalgia so it was a pretty key motivating factor in getting it over the line you have to remember mark that the leader of the labor party at the time jeremy corbyn was a self-proclaimed radical so Mm. what you had was a labor party that wasn't arguing for the role and the stability and the nostalgia of Europe in any way. You know, I firmly believe uh, that Jeremy Corbyn probably voted for Brexit himself in the ballot booth, despite Labour's official position being to support Remain. So I would agree that the slogans, some of them are about uh, were about nostalgia, and certainly a lot of the narrative around Brexit has been about nostalgia. But I would agree with Sophie, you know, taking back control, well, what do you then do with that control? And that's that sort of forward looking piece, which is where in terms of actually implementing Brexit and looking at the UK's role in the world, I'm not sure that the work has been done either sort of at the top or in fact within the British population either. I think a very important element of this was that, and and this is a really essential nuance to understand, is that, you know, the British people on the whole, do not want to actually go back to the past. And, you know, this is what is described as a form of restorative nostalgia, and this is where you start to get into much more dangerous territory. This is about kind of reinstating the structures, power dynamics, agency representation and so on um, that different groups held in society in the past. But what many of the British people wanted was to kind of stop the clock a little bit and shore up the foundation of those anchors of British culture, traditions, identity, etc., because they felt that the pace of change was becoming a little bit dizzying. Now, I think that is a very distinct phenomenon from um, nostalgia per se. Would and you? I think, would, can I? Can I just clarify that? Would you? Would you specifically say that with English culture as distinct from British culture? Well, you know, I think in a way, a, a lot of focus has gone on to uh, 
the distinction of English identity and culture um, from British culture and identity. That's that is partly um, not just because of uh, the question of the role that played in Brexit, but also because of the Scottish independence referendums and the resurgence of a Scottish nationalist identity. Um, I think the British government's actually done, the UK government as a whole has done pretty well navigating that. And I would say actually the um, some of those distinctions in identity are becoming um, a little bit less profound and and marked. That's partly because you do have a quite distinct generational divide on that. And so that's just sort of a, a sort of a generational phenomenon. Um, but but I would say that the question that was being asked there about who we want to be is a question that every advanced democracy is grappling with at the moment and is going to have to find some answers to. And so I think, you know, in a way, Brexit compelled these questions onto the forefront. It, you know, British political culture is extremely internationalized, partly because of the deep integration of platforms such as Twitter and so on. So there's there's always an international audience watching, and and so everything does feel quite visible. But it's the same with the questions that. Brexit has compelled um, about our role in the world uh, as it is about the questions about who we are at home. Every other country is having to grapple with these same questions. It's just that because we have pursued a scorched earth and we sort of blew up the system, that we actually have to put out the documents and the strategies and the thinking and the campaigns and really focus minds and attentions on answering these questions. So yeah. it is it is a British phenomenon, but it is also something that every country that is going through extraordinary aspects of social and economic change is, is also dealing with too. It's such a good point, actually, that uh, Britain has effectively sort of punctuated this trend or, or, or kind of codified it almost by by this uh, enormous decision and now has to has to justify it has to explain it uh, as you say in writing and, and so forth let's take a quick break and be back in just a moment you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were talking about Brexit. I just want to stay with Brexit for a little bit longer because it is sort of the foundation of of, of all of the things that have been happening in, in Britain over the last, uh, uh, whatever it is, five, seven years uh, since, this, uh, since this enormous sort of earthquake occurred uh, in British politics. Um, 
Obviously, uh, we were saying just before the break, talking about the way Britain is handling that and the way the the way Brexit is being seen now and and so forth. I mean, all of the points you were making about uh, the fact that other countries are dealing with it, um, dealing with this uh, question of identity in a globalized world and so forth, all um, very good points. I think I'm really really interested to hear those those views. But there were specific things that were promised by the Brexiteers about the future, which, um, you know, that was the message that British voters heard. And they were things about, you know, there was this sort of promise of this sort of low, low, um, regulation, neoliberal economy that was, that was much more resilient and that could be uh, more successful on its own, decoupled from Europe. And there was also this promise that there would be um, a resurgence in bilateral trade deals, particularly with Commonwealth countries, but also with the US. Well, there's no real prospect of a US free trade deal at the moment, as far as I can tell. Uh, and the free trade deals they have signed with uh, with Australia and and New Zealand, I think, are, are, are minuscule in terms of the proportion of British trade. Um, so it's just not delivering. Is, is it, as Elizabeth? Uh, is is it? delivering anything like what people understood it was going to? I think this is a really interesting question, Mark. I've also been amused in the background because I remember Sophia and I being on during the Tory leadership campaign and saying, oh, Brexit's just going to be a background issue. We won't talk about it very much. Uh, and here we are having a whole podcast still talking about it uh, <laughs> six, six and a half years on. Um, that inherent tension was there from the beginning in the Brexit discussion. So it was very much you had sort of people who are very libertarian saying we'll become Singapore upon Thames, it will be a bonfire of the regulations, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg, chief among them. And then you had others more like Boris Johnson saying, we'll use this to decouple from the EU and then we'll be able to spend more on services, you know, whatever it was, 350 million a week for the NHS. And we'll be able to invest in areas with leveling up in a way that you know, EU regulations have prevented us from doing. So you had this complete tension between we need to spend more on areas that have been historically underinvested and we will have a bonfire of the regulation, a very small state. And that, I think, was a tension that came to the head in Liz Truss's government because Overall, it's a very like Australia in that way. You know, Brits would like American level of taxation and Swedish level of services. And you can't square that circle in terms of your um, fiscal policy. You can't have that in a budget. And the market said to, to Liz Truss and Quasi Kwarteng, well, your sums don't add up and we don't trust the UK. Essentially, we don't trust the UK government uh, to borrow from us. And that was how we got where we are. In terms of Brexit delivering with trade deals and, and regulation. Obviously, you had the COVID downturn, the global COVID downturn, which helped to mask a lot of these growing pains. And it does take a long time to decouple an economy from its traditional economic base. If you think about Australia in the 1970s, having to reorient itself towards the Asia Pacific after we lost trade with the UK when the UK first joined the common market, that was a long and painful process, you know, that that arguably took 20 or 30 years for Australia to get to the point where it was properly integrated with Asian supply chains and actually now has managed to weather some of the shocks that have brought the UK and the EU down because of the resilience of that market. The problem for the UK is that Europe is still its natural market. You, know, you can't change geography. 
And so as much as you can sign these free trade deals with Australia and New Zealand, I agree the US one looks like it's it's nowhere close. You can't change the fact that it's much easier for someone to export widgets across you know, a few miles of open ocean than it is for them to get them to the other side of the world. And so what I think the UK really needs to do now, and, and, and this is where I think there is a, a policy trap for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party thinking about how they position themselves going into the next election, is they have to rethink the basis of the UK's trading relationship with the EU. During the Brexit campaign, everybody said, oh, we won't leave the common market, we won't leave the customs union, you know, we'll, we'll, it's that cake and eat it, we'll have cakeism, we'll be able to stay in mm. those and we'll still be able to have treat, free trade deals. And those of us who knew more about trade and policy and said, that's not possible. You can't have those two things. They're in complete opposition to each other. You can either stay in the common market and stay in the customs union and have very small services-based trade agreements, or you can leave those two and have more comprehensive trade agreements but lose your main trading partner, which is the choice that was was taken. And so I think in terms of policy honesty with the UK people and thinking about you know the next election, which is due in a couple of years, what we really need is a fundamental rethink of our economic relationship with the EU, what that's going to look like going forward, and how the UK economy is going to function in a world where it can't change where it's based. Can I just ask you to explain that a bit more in terms of why you say that's a trap for Labor uh, specifically as distinct from the existing government? So I think that there is a strong sense that that the Labour Party in the UK is likely to win the next election. You know, there has been a small bounce with Rishi Sunak coming in as Prime Minister in the polling, but there's still an overwhelming lead for Labour in, in the polls. And for Keir Starmer in particular, who was very anti-Brexit, who ran the internal Labour campaign to, you know, have a second run of the referendum and to vote down some of those Brexit deals that Theresa May brought back that would have resulted in a, a softer Brexit. He now can't be seen to be advocating for anything that looks like winding back Brexit. You know, that conversation is done. That conversation has been had with the UK electorate. Very clearly, the electorate said, you know, we want to get Brexit done. We've had enough of this. We've made a decision, implement it. And so, this, so, when you say the electorate said that, you say that you mean that in terms of the re election of Boris Johnson rather exactly, than the, the 20, vote. Yep, good. Exactly. The 2019 election was a very clear mandate for sorting out this Brexit mess. And we've had enough. We don't want to hear any more about it. For Keir Starmer in particular, as someone who was very strongly anti-Brexit, very pro-Europe, I think it's going to be hard for him to have a conversation where he says, we need closer trading ties with Europe without people jumping up and down and saying, you want to rerun the election, you want to cancel Brexit, you want to undo all of this great progress that the UK has made uh, over the last six and a half years or, or eight years as it will be then. So it might be one of those situations where the only party that's actually able to bring about that economic rapprochement with Europe are the Conservatives. That's uh, somewhat su surprising in a way, although I understand what you're saying, but it's kind of a perverse outcome really. They've created the mess and they may be the, the, the only party that has, has the, is in the right position to be able to make it work or to, uh, to navigate the future. That seems to be what you're saying. Yes. That, I mean, it's something I've been thinking about quite a bit over the last last few weeks as we've watched this play out. And, you know, in the same way that often it's really only uh, the Labour Party who can make radical economic reforms like floating the dollar because they're trusted to, to do that in a way that sometimes the Conservatives aren't. I do wonder whether it has to be a Conservative government that will come in and say, actually, we need to rethink how we're linked up with Europe. 
but we'll protect Brexit because you know we're the party of Brexit. Oh, I just want to go back to Sophia in a sec, but just to, just to be clear on one point, when you say a trap for Labor, are you saying a trap for Labor if it's in government or are you saying this is the kind of trap which, uh, which, which could prevent Labor from winning, even though, as you say, they've got well over double-digit support now lead ahead of the government? I think both, because if they're not able to advocate for a new economic relationship with Europe in an election campaign, then they certainly won't be able to do that once they're in power. It's the sort of thing that you really need to have a mandate from the people to implement. But if you're not able to talk about it in an election campaign for fear of being branded anti-Brexit and pro-Remain and a Romaniac, then you certainly can't implement it once you're in power. So it'll be very interesting to see how Keir Starmer and the Labour Party navigate that over the next couple of years. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating indeed. Sophia, I wonder if we could turn now to, um, because uh, we have been talking a lot about Brexit, but let's talk now about the, the, the current political situation. What can we infer, what can Australians infer watching this from afar about the arrival of, of Rishi Sunak? Is he... Um, you know, we know he's a former investment banker. We know he's extremely wealthy. I think he may be the wealthiest man in Westminster. Uh, is that right? Yes, he's well. He is married to um, a woman who is from one of the wealthiest Indian families, um, literally billionaires. So it's quite an extraordinary <laughs> situation. And he's, I mean, he's depicted. Uh, I've seen some people sort of criticising him as as a bit of a soulless technocrat. Um, he's different from Boris Johnson in that sense. I mean, Johnson's this highly colourful figure and, uh, um, you know, uh, obviously I don't need to describe him except to say that, uh, you know, a polarising figure, but those who like him, some of them do so with some reluctance. They even disagree with him, but they still can't help liking him. Um, does Sunak have any sort of personality that we've that we've seen emerge in a prime ministerial sense? Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson are self-evidently extremely different politicians. Um, Rishi Sunak is is certainly more of a policy brain. I think for Boris, the question was always about whether or not he could uh, bring together and, and sustain a competent team underneath him who would be leading on those sorts of things. Um, and he was the sort of very charismatic public face. Uh, Rishi Sunak is is a details-oriented policy person who will be very hands-on behind the scenes. He is, you know, a man of spreadsheets and detail and obviously having come from the Treasury. I think one thing that was extremely interesting about his time in number 11 was that, um, you know, Rishi Sunak was a, you know, very ardent Brexiteer. And I think he remains one. But, you know, the, we talk about treasury orthodoxy, which is what Liz Truss and Quasi Quarteng sought to um, challenge. Overturn, uh, yes. Yeah, indeed, very unsuccessfully. Um, and, and the reason for that is that the, the orthodoxy emerges uh, for, for a very sound reason, which is that you know, when you are fundamentally responsible for balancing the books and adding up all the sums, that does change the way in which you think about things. And normally what it does in the British state is it tempers ideology. And certainly his time in number 11, I think what we saw was 
was the development of a kind of logic, which it will be very interesting to see how that translates into number 10, because you are operating from a rather different logic there. So certainly in terms of um, our trading relationships, for example, he understood intellectually that if we were to inject friction into our largest trading relationship, that we would need to be absolutely gung-ho and and open and relaxed about our engagement with um, other countries around the world. So I think in terms of some of the debates that were being had around um, the UK's relationship with China, which of course uh, that that sort of real vault fuss and the, you know, this reckoning that Westminster has had around China took place while Rishi was in number 11. I think in some of those cabinet debates around that, he tended generally to be on the side of of openness, uh, whereas others like Liz Truss, for example, were, were evidently considerably more openly hawkish. But but in the same way, that does also play back into the EU relationship because he tended also to avoid conflict and a lot of the sort of um, – I guess the sort of more emotive aspects of the political debate he felt were a distraction. He he is for kind of adult conversations. And we have seen that as one of the clearest signals that we have had under his premiership is that the uh, domestic economic situation is clearly something he feels needs a lot of attention. And the idea of having spats with our closest neighbors over different issues, um, some of which are very important and some of which are, are more political and less consequential in nature. And, and, and one of those was, uh, I think you were referring there to Liz Truss's uh, comments about France, where she was asked, was France friend or foe at one stage? And I think she said she equivocated on that somehow. Yes. Yeah, so I think what he has done is to say there's absolutely no ambiguity here. We are all in in the sort of existential uh, battle for the liberal world order we are absolutely on the same side and uh, you will see even you know he's he's a big kind of social media and twitter communicator and all the messages we've had uh in the past week from him have been very you know warm towards the eu so i think you know while the northern ireland protocol and so on still very much needs to be thrashed out behind the scenes and i think he sees that as a serious policy challenge um, a lot of the heat is coming out of the political relationship, and that is a good thing. And that essentially, you know, the, the, what that does is unlocks space for new conversations and thinking that we just haven't been able to have before. I should also say, just to give some credit as well, this was something that did begin under Truss's time in the Foreign Office. And the key thing that unlocked that was the repatriation of the EU relationship, which had been excised away from the Foreign Office because of the trade negotiations. Um, the repatriation of that relationship back into the Foreign Office um, when Liz Truss became Foreign Secretary, I think, was really the turning point. So in, in some ways, the you know, I, I think Liz Truss is sort of getting a rap on various different choices and 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 some of those are fair. But I do think that um, she was certainly instrumental in, in moving the conversation in our not bilateral but institutional relationships with, with the EU to, to a more adult state. And as Elizabeth has already flagged, um, the decision to 
go to the European political community meeting in Prague. And and not just to go, we have also put up our hands and said that we will host uh, one of the next ones. I I think that was really uh, meaningful. And so in a way, while I absolutely agree with Elizabeth about the sort of challenges of how Labour will interact with the EU and and the Conservatives to some extent, I, I think for me, this is more an issue of timing um, necessarily than who's in number 10. I do not think we're going to have any kind of fundamental rapprochement around the trading relationship until after the next election. And that's because it will just take a little while for a new normal and a kind of a degree of comfort and confidence in in our new status to develop. Because ultimately, both the UK and the EU, one of the reasons why it's been so difficult to get sort of, you know, to have these more forward-looking, generous conversations is because both sides have been going through challenges to their confidence. And actually, in a way, um, it's only when both sides are feeling really um, confident and optimistic about their futures that I think they will feel mutually comfortable starting to have those those kinds of conversations. There have been a lot of um, observations made by people about the sort of Australian influence in British politics. That partly because there are some Australian, you know, prominent Australians that have been involved. Uh, we know we know the names of those people, but but also just that some of the lessons learned and some people have talked about the, the British Conservatives catching the Australian disease in terms of the volatility around the leadership and so forth. One of the other parallels that may be worrying some people on the Labor side is that they may be in that same circumstance where all of the polls tell them they're going to win the next election, but the Conservatives may have just put in their equivalent of Scott Morrison in 2018. That is someone who's trailing in the polls, but who appears competent, who intends to try and take politics, at least the theatrics of it, off the front pages, um, and through through being less seen as less of a risk, I suppose, in the future, somehow manages to get across the line at the next election. Do you think there's any possibility of that, Elizabeth? Well, and Rishi Sunak will have the same Australian uh, election guru, Isaac Levito, running his campaign that ran Correct. Scott Morrison's uh, campaign then as well. So a huge amount of crossover. I certainly think there is something to the Labour Party here pursuing a similar strategy to Anthony Albanese's uh, government in Australia when they were in opposition, you know, small target, let the uh, let the Tories kind of destroy themselves and just sit back and look quiet and competent. But again, it's worked as, so far. It has worked. But then once you get into power, it means that you potentially don't have as strong a mandate as you need for the radical change. And we know that Albanese's response to that is he views himself as a two-term prime minister and you need two terms to really make a difference. Of course, in the UK, where government terms are five years rather than three, you can make a big difference in, in your first term. So they will need to start advocating some some policy positions, and you're starting to see that now, I think, now that they think, right, Rishi Sunak's in, we've got two years, we have to rebuild. It's something actually, interestingly, Sophia and I, who, as you know, talk offline as well as on the podcast, have been talking about recently is the strength of those links between the UK and Australia. You know, the institutional links remain strong, particularly between the two foreign ministries and, and the defence ministries, and Australia's contributions to the Ukraine have very much been uh, appreciated by the UK. I do think we're in an interesting period where 
probably both countries will need to be more deliberate about their political links. When you have, as you do at the moment, a, a Labour Party in Australia and a Conservative Party in the UK or vice versa, the natural links between parties that are often established and were very much there between Scott Morrison's government and Boris Johnson's government are not there quite so easily. And so you have to have a more deliberate interaction between the, the political leaders. Certainly, you know, we had the Orkman Australia-UK ministerial meetings coming up towards the end of this year over here in the UK, and it's going to be really important for those meetings for the, the foreign minister here, James Cleverly, and Australia's foreign minister, Penny Wong, to use that as a chance to build a stable relationship over the next couple of years, to have that interaction and that uh, allyship on the international stage to promote the things that, that both countries very much believe in. So, as ever, there's there's a lot of similarities and a lot of links, but I do think actually it's a time for both countries to sit down and think about what the relationship looks like and then very deliberately build that together. And finally, Sophia, do you think any chance of an early election? Uh, definitely not. Um, I don't think the Conservatives have been interested in an early election uh, for some time. I think they actually are already seeing a little bit of a swing back and, and a stabilisation in, in the polls, and they will hope that they can turn things around. I think what is absolutely clear is that we are living in an extremely dynamic environment at the moment where external global factors are very much bearing down on domestic politics. And I think there is a sense that, you know, if, if you looked back to where we were after the 2019 election, could anyone have possibly predicted what was going to take place um, and the extraordinary um, events that have transpired since then? Um, many of which, in, you know, in a way, uh, just it was the external factors as well bearing down on on and and creating destabilizing you know and creating dysfunction in, in Westminster. So I think that there is very much a clear understanding about that and a sense that you know we are now around 18 months away from uh, when the next election would be scheduled. I think you know there is a sense that in that time uh, there will be things that will come onto the agenda that are difficult to foresee. And so some of those uh, events may favour the current government and they may also further challenge the current government. So I think for all of those reasons, they're going to um, stay the course and, and continue to pursue a, a longer term strategy. It's also, as, as Elizabeth pointed out, because the Labour Party is pursuing a, a sort of small target strategy, very, very, you know, intense process having to do that and keeping the house in order and, you know, making sure you're not slipping up all the time. And they've had to do that in a very sustained way now for, for more than two years. And they've got, you know, still 18 months to go. So I think there is almost a sense that you could sort of wear labor down and, and start to create room for some more dysfunction. So for all of those reasons, I, I, I think certainly we will, um, continue to be looking at a 2024 election. Well, it'll be fascinating to see if Sunak has the kind of political mongrel, as we say here in, in Australia, to uh, to kind of uh, land those arguments and really draw the Labor Party out uh, because it may require that kind of thing. Or, or, or as you say, the Labor Party is going to need to be very disciplined in the way it goes about things, but it hasn't been so hard with the um, all of the problems on the government side. It may get harder from here. Who knows? Um, look, uh, we've 
probably spoken for too long already. It's uh, um, been absolutely fascinating having such great analysts on the program. Sophia Gaston and Elizabeth Ames, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's Democracy Sausage for this week. Thanks so much for your company. We'll be back around the same time next week. Uh, and until then, from a new bye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.